you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be looking at, or at least reading two places together. One is Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, and then we'll go back to the passage that we've read a couple of times already in this series. Those of you who haven't been with us the last few times together this spring on Sunday nights, for Sunday evening praise this semester, we're doing a series called Wonderfully Made, learning what it means to be human. Uh, And part of the larger context is our culture's profound confusion over what it means to be human, um, what it means to have a body, what it means to be body-soul beings, what it means to be either male or female, uh, what all these things mean. There's, there's great confusion uh, about all of these issues. Uh, and so we've been looking at um, just seven propositions. Um, the first is that to be human is to have a body. Uh, the second is to be human is to have a soul. Uh, But then third, what we looked at last time, and then we'll look at again tonight, is this idea that to be human is to be either male or female, which of course is right where so much of our cultural dissonance uh, is rooted. These two passages together, I think, will help us think a little bit further uh, about what it means that from the beginning um, we were made male or female. But before we turn our attention to God's word, we need his help. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this evening asking that you would open our eyes of faith. Uh, Lord, there's so much confusion about these beginning passages in Genesis, so much that have been read into them in the past, so much that we read into them now. Lord, give us eyes to actually see what the text says, but even more have a heart for what it means, that we might be led by the hand to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, grant us this, we ask, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first then, Matthew chapter 19, and beginning in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning... It was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And then Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I I think there's a a key reason that perhaps we've not accounted for and why there's such a contemporary struggle over understanding the point that we've been trying to make. That is, to be human is to be either male or female. And here's the reason, uh, I think, at least one key reason. The failure to read what the Bible says, rather than importing our own cultural commitments and traditions into that reading, makes it really hard then for our contemporary moment to take us seriously when we say this is what the Bible says. After all, for thousands of years, going back to Aristotle and beyond him to the fall, men have viewed women as inferior as nothing more than, to use Aristotle's language from his book, Generation of Animals, as nothing more than mutilated men. It's proven hard for Christians to read the Bible differently when when those views, the superiority of men over women, as women the less than, as nothing more than mutilated men, when that's the air we breathe, it's hard to read the Bible differently. Martin Luther tried In his 1535 lectures on Genesis, Luther actually advanced beyond his age. Uh, he, He affirmed that women were created in God's image. And in that sense, the woman shared in God's glory. But then Luther said, and this is Luther Works, Volume 1, page 69, Luther said, although Eve was a most excellent and beautiful creature, like unto Adam in reference to the image of God, that is, with respect to righteousness, wisdom, and salvation, yet she was a woman. For as the sun is more glorious than the moon, though the moon is a most glorious body, so woman, though she is a most beautiful work of God, yet she did not equal the glory of the male creature. The male is as the sun in the heaven, the female is the moon, while the other animals are the stars over which the sun and the moon have influence and rule. The principal thing to be remarked, therefore, in the text before us that it is thus written to show that the female sex is not excluded from all the glory of human nature, although inferior to the male sex. Three different ways Luther made it plain that though he had advanced beyond his age, he still viewed women as less than, as inferior. Yet she was a woman, yet she did not equal the glory of the male creature, although she was inferior to the male sex. Of course, the problem with that is there is nothing in the biblical account of Genesis that leads us to believe that women were inferior to men, that they did not equal the glory of men, or that they represented a kind of reflective glory of the man. And so here's the problem when we misread the biblical text. When unwittingly the the air that we breathe, or to change it, the, the water that we swim in, so influences the biblical text that we read things that are not there. 
It actually gives credence to feminist theologians and gender activists when they claim that Christians impose cultural readings on the text. And so it really is, they claim. Interpretation really is about power, not about meaning and understanding. Friends, our goal as we read the Bible should always be driven by what does the Bible actually say? What does it demand? Especially when we come to the account of the beginnings. In our Matthew reading, Jesus was confronted with questions concerning divorce. But to answer them, he actually takes his readers, his hearers, back to the beginning. Twice he says, from the beginning, it was not so. Did you hear it? In chapter, Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning male and female, and said, and then he quotes Genesis uh, 2, verse 24, and then in response to their question about Moses from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, Jesus is telling us that if we, if we want to understand what God's original intention was, we don't look at life post-fall in order to understand what God intended. No, we have to go back to the beginning. The divine intention for humans is rooted in creation, which means then we have to read these accounts carefully. And when we do, we not only see that our sex identity as male or female is essential as humans, which is what we talked about last time. Now, I think we see three further things about humanity being created as male or female. Three further things that we have to hold on to as we think through these cultural issues that confront us and oppose the biblical account. And the first is this, bodies reveal persons. Bodies reveal our persons. Remember, we've already seen in previous weeks that to be human is to be a body-soul being. We are embodied souls or spiritualized bodies. But the question comes, how do we know one another's souls? How do we know the interior thoughts of one another? How do we know the real other that is a body-soul human? Well, we know each other ultimately. We know the interiors, if you will, through our bodies. Bodies reveal our persons. And you saw that in Genesis chapter 2 when the woman is brought to the man when he sees her, he cries out, this at last is bone of my bones. I shall call her woman. Her, her personality, her personhood is revealed through her body. But if that's the case, then our bodies as male or female reveal ourselves as male or female. In other words, our gender is tied to our sexed bodies. Now, obviously, that claim is highly contested in our present moment. 
Some of you, I think, are aware of a recent Scottish law that's actually been blocked by the parliament in the United Kingdom. Uh, the so-called gender ID law would allow a Scottish resident to identify legally as a specific gender of their choice without having to undergo a medical uh, examination. Someone could change his or her legal sex on their birth certificate or eventually their death certificate simply by requesting to do so. Remember what we talked about last time, that reality precedes naming? The reality of being born male or female is what caused the doctor to write down male or female. But this law seeks to undo all of that, to divorce gender from our biological sex identity. The law is rooted in this idea that gender is self-chosen, constructed, unrooted, in any kind of prior biological God-given reality. But as Jesus said, from the beginning, it was not so. When the man saw the woman, her body revealed her gendered person to him. And when the woman saw the man, his body did the same. The woman had not yet spoken before the man said, I will call her woman. The naming corresponded to reality because her body revealed her person. Gender is essentially rooted in biological reality. But there's another thing here. Our bodies reveal our persons. And when the man and the woman experience this, this revelation of the other, they actually experienced glory. And what was that glory? Well, it's described at the end of the chapter in Genesis 2, verse 25. And, and the man and his wife, or perhaps better, the man and the woman, were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that verse is certainly enigmatic. I mean, what does it mean that they were naked and not ashamed? Well, obviously, it means they were nude. They had no clothes. But it also means that neither this reality nor their sexed difference was threatening. As their bodies revealed their persons, neither the man nor the woman experienced threats or fear or shame. Their real selves, the entirety of their real selves as male and female, as man and woman, was fully seen and known. Their persons were revealed by their bodies perfectly. They had no need to cover up, no need to limit access to their real selves. They could give their whole selves freely and fully to the other, not only physically, but in the fullness of who they were as body-soul beings. Of course, that would change after the fall. But God's intention from the beginning was that this glory, that, that male and female would new in the garden would continue and that their bodies would perfectly reveal their persons. But there's a second thing here um, as we think about what it means to be human as male and female. Certainly our bodies reveal our persons, but the second thing I want you to notice is that order does not imply rank. Order does not imply rank. And again, this is, this is highly contested, but not by our secular culture. No, it's actually highly contested in some of our own circles. There are those like 
PCA pastor Kevin DeYoung or like megachurch pastor John MacArthur who, who try to root the subordination of wives to husbands and of all women to all men back here in the creation account. But the problem with that is that the text simply doesn't say that. Nowhere in Genesis does it say that the man is superior to the woman, that all women everywhere are subordinate to all men everywhere, or even that wives are subordinate to husbands. What it does say is that there is a creation order. The man was created first, and the woman was created from the man's rib. But of course, every other human being, even the man who leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, they, they will come from the woman. Um, similarly, um, the woman is brought to the man in Genesis chapter 2. But then at the end of the chapter, every man will actually leave his father and mother and go to his wife. And so this is an important principle, I think, that, that order does not mean, it does not imply rank. What you see in Genesis is that the man and the woman are equal, yet different. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, we'll come back to that after missions conference again, but that place, as you know, tells us that both males and females are image of God. They they share essentially and equally a place as God bearers, as as those who image forth God. As I've said repeatedly in this series, the male is not more the image of God than the female. Both are equal in sharing such glory. But the man and the woman are different. Yet different does not mean less than. The man potentially generates life outside himself. The woman potentially receives and nurtures life within herself. The man perhaps shows forth divine generosity, the woman divine fecundity, and yet together, male and female image God. They are equal in glory and dignity, though complementary in difference. And they are different, yet needed. Because of the influence of the King James Version, we've had the misfortune of viewing Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, um, as describing a helpmeet or a helpmate for the man, as opposed to the way the ESV renders it, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And this idea of a helpmeet or a helpmate led us perhaps to believe that the woman's person was to, or purpose was to be a kind of secondary partner for the man, the moon reflecting his sunlight, as Luther had it. But the Hebrew word here in Genesis 2.20 for helper is actually the Hebrew word Ezer. It's most frequently used in the Old Testament to describe God, Yahweh's relationship to Israel. Over and again, God is shown to be Israel's Ezer because he is the strong one. He is able to help. He is able to deliver his people. And so the woman's role here as the Ezer, as the helper, isn't to be a kind of junior associate for the man. Rather, she is to help him, to deliver him, to succor him, to be a strong one for him. Though she is different, yet she is needed for the man. In the same way that the man is different, yet needed for the woman. 
And so men and women are equal, different, and needed. Now there is a created order. And the Old Testament, excuse me, the New Testament especially will use that to provide us a way in this time between times, the time between the creation of the world and the new creation coming, in this time between times to provide order for our families and churches. But it's not based on any idea that, that women are less than men, because order does not imply rank. Rather, God's creative design in making humans, either male or female, teaches us most importantly and finally that our bodies have spousal meaning. Our bodies have spousal meaning. You see, the purpose for our creation as male and female is not simply for us to know the joy of difference and unity, the communion of purpose of persons that marriage offers. Rather, it's meant to point us to a greater reality. We were made for union and communion with God. As the Apostle Paul pointed out in Ephesians chapter 5, the one flesh reality of male and female together is actually a sign of a yet greater union. Because we are united to Christ. Our difference from him is brought together in a unity that shows his great love for us. And we see then this larger pattern that as men and women give the gift of themselves to each other, so we learn to, to have eyes to see Christ himself giving himself as a gift to us and for us. And though we stand naked before him, as Hebrews 4 tells us, and though we are exposed to his eyes, we need not fear. We are not threatened. We are not ashamed. Because he looks at us with eyes of love. And he holds us with nail-pierced hands. And he loves us as we actually are, namely, as his own flesh. If we obliterate this sex difference, our maleness and femaleness, then we obliterate the clearest sign we have of the, our ultimate purpose as humans, that we are to enjoy God and be enjoyed by God forever. You see? Our bodies have spousal meaning. In the same way that spouses give the gift of themselves to one another, so we are called to give ourselves to the Christ who has given himself to us and for us. Our bodies are meant to teach us that we are Christ's bride, loved and loving eternally. This is the glory that God has given us as humans made in his image. This is the glory that God has given us as humans made male or female. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, none of these things are easy to try to sort out what in our understandings and inheritance is culturally derived and, and what in fact is actually what the Bible says. But Lord, we long to be Bible people, to actually, what does the Bible say? What does it demand of us? How might we see life in this world clearly through the spectacles of Holy Scripture? And so, Lord, we pray tonight that through your word and by coming to this table that you will teach us once again 
the glory of being male, made male or female, that you would have us for yourself, that just as you've given yourself for us, so you call us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to you, to give our very selves away to you, that in this gift-giving of body and soul to each other, we actually come closest to understanding what your great purpose is, namely a real vital relationship, union and communion with you. Lord, grant us this grace that we might see more clearly and love you more dearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table tonight by taking our worship booklets and singing, Lord, I need you. We're made seated to sing, but those who are serving the table can come forward on the last verse. Let's sing together. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the
my one defense, my righteousness. Oh, 